welcome to EVN Report. My name is Maria Titizian, and joining me today is Dr. Nerses Kopalian, the author of EVN Security Report series. Welcome to the program, Nerses. Thank you for having me, Maria. Uh, the month of September 2023, in your security briefing, you titled Russo-Azerbaijani Trap and the Collapse of the Artsakh Republic. Now, for our listeners, I think we we should do a quick recap of what the situation is. We started these security briefings last September uh, when Azerbaijan launched a massive uh, large-scale attack against the sovereign republic of Armenia. And this month, on September 19, Azerbaijani armed forces uh, launched an assault against Nagorno-Karabakh, Artsakh. 24 hours later, a ceasefire agreement was reached which uh, stipulated that the Artsakh Defense Army would be disbanded. And on September 24, the Lachin Corridor that had been blocked for almost 10 months since December of 2022 was opened, and we saw a mass exodus of the population uh, of Nagorno-Karabakh. And today, just over 100,000 people have already crossed into the Republic of Armenia. Uh, and then there were a series of meetings, and the president of Artsakh, Samuel Shahramanian, signed a decree saying that all state institutions and organizations would be shut down. And by January 1, 2024, the Nagorno-Karabakh Republic would cease to exist. Um, right now, Armenia is facing a humanitarian crisis with uh, over 100,000 refugees uh, in the country. And the Cities and towns of Artsakh are now depopulated. You write about this Russo-Azerbaijani trap. Could you please expand on what you mean by this trap? And as a follow-up question, you will probably address this. When did Russia stop being our security guarantor? Well, the concepts and developments are interconnected. Uh, Russia, in reality, stopped being our security guarantor in 2016. Um, this became uh, very obvious to us. Internally, we don't know if they were ever our security guarantor, considering the way that they've been behaving uh, towards Azerbaijan and the way that they've been denying anything of substance to Armenia within the realm of security. So we could, to a large extent, based on the extent data that we have, uh, assume that uh, it was all basically lip service that Russia utilized as security guarantor to simply keep Armenia in a structured dependence. But yet when push came to shove and Russia had to act, they didn't. And they did everything possible to justify their inaction. In that context, um, Russia no longer uh, served as Armenia's guarantor or ally, but rather worked against the interests of Armenia. So those developments basically produced the, uh, the volatile security environment and the severe security dilemma that Armenia faced. From that lens, we see that uh, Russia's position in 2020 and Russia's position uh, post-February uh, 2022 after the invasion of Ukraine fundamentally changed uh, in the South Caucasus. So in 2020, uh, it was pretty obvious that Russia had every intention of utilizing the November 9 trilateral statement on the ceasefire uh, with the mandate that it gave its peacekeepers to establish for itself uh, another presence, a boots-on-the-ground logic by which it could uh, further control the conflict between the two parties and thus have a presence in Nagorno-Karabakh, which would both enhance the dependency of Armenia because Russia would be the only source of security for the Armenian population since the Armenian state, Republic of Armenia, was removed from the process. And Russia did encourage the removal of all Armenian troops and Armenian weaponry from Nagorno-Karabakh because they said we're assuming responsibility. 
At the same time, by having force in the ground, Russia's assumption was that they will also have leverage against Azerbaijan. And therefore, even within the logic of territorial integrity, which Russia uh, agreed to and uh, Azerbaijan accepted, Russians would have troops within, quote-unquote, Azerbaijan proper. So in that context, 2020, the, the, the dynamics were as such. After the uh, 2022 February invasion of Ukraine and the severe setbacks that Russia struggled, and noting that the entirety of Russia's resources have been basically uh, applied to the front lines in Ukraine, Russia's influence, resources, and capacities in the South Caucasus exponentially deteriorated. This diminishing gave Azerbaijan an avenue to basically reinstate and advance its Mox Maximus posturing. But note that even before the Ukraine invasion, when we looked at Azerbaijan's incursion into Armenia proper with Sevlich, for example, uh, in the Sisyan area, in Verinshorsha, in Jermuk in September of 2022, these were basically extensions of Russia standing by allowing Azerbaijan to violate Armenia's territorial integrity. So the pattern was quite clear. But uh, what we saw is that Russia's influence fundamentally declined after uh, the uh, failures that we saw in the Ukraine invasion and the allocation of resources. With those developments, Russia needed to basically reestablish its interest to enhance the authoritarian orbit in the South Caucasus. And this is where the establishment of the uh, Russo-Azerbaijani axis was developed. Uh, this is what I call the proxyization of Azerbaijan, in the sense that Azerbaijan is not a Russian satellite, but when it comes to Armenia, or when it comes to basically uh, punitive actions that Russia wants to impose upon Armenia, Azerbaijan serves as a proxy to achieve those ends. And so proxyization process fundamentally created a situation where Armenia's strategic interests were no longer aligned with Russia because Russia had abandoned all of its responsibilities towards Armenia. And to keep Armenia within its orbit, Russia's objective was to deteriorate the security situation to such an extent that Armenia would have no other option but to crawl back to Russia. And this deterioration was done through the proxyization of Azerbaijan. So conceptually, those were the developments. And now we come to Nagorno-Karabakh. Well, what happened with Karabakh is quite complicated in the sense that Russia had realized it had lost Armenia, it had lost Yerevan. Russia no longer has political influence or leverage against Yerevan. And so it played the only card that it has, which has been a Nagorno-Karabakh card since the 90s. And so the trap was really, really straightforward, either to draw Armenia into a war, which Armenia didn't fall into, or if that didn't work, take steps and implement outcomes that would create domestic instability in Armenia and lead to regime change, after which Russia could reestablish and reinforce Armenia as a satellite. So contextually, the Russo-Azerbaijani trap was an extension of the attempt of basically Russia seeking to reestablish Armenia as a satellite, and in return, Azerbaijan receiving what it has, what it has sought for a long time, a complete absorption of Nagorno-Karabakh. We also saw what some are calling now a coup in the leadership in Artsakh, where Aray Karuchunyan decided to resign. The National Assembly then voted in Samvesha Ramanian, and not soon after, and soon after we saw what took place. And you said that this Russo-Azerbaijani axis set an inescapable trap for Stepanagert. 
uh, certainly I understand that this was also meant to, in its own way, destabilize Armenia, destabilize Yerevan, having to deal now with this uh, huge uh, challenge of um, absorbing, integrating, or welcoming, and 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 trying to deal with this huge humanitarian crisis. Did Stepanagert have any outs? Did it have any other option? That's uh, a very, very interesting question. You know, in in the scholarship on this, uh, in the domain of loss, decision makers tend to become risk averse. But when when the uh, domain of loss becomes uh, to an extent where which they know sustainability is no longer tenable, uh, they shift from being relatively conservative and risk averse to being very, very high uh, risk-inducing in their behavior to find some solution. In that context, um, we had seen Stepanakert make the decision that in order for them to have a chance to survive the trap that it was being set, it would basically align and listen to everything that Russia demand- demanded with the hopes that the Russians would not abandon them. Because contextually, Russia had completely neutralized officially Yerevan from any developments in Nagorno-Karabakh. Negotiations fundamentally were between Moscow, Stepanakert, and Baku. In that context, Baku knew that it had complete leverage over Stepanakert. And so the only avenue Stepanakert considered it had was to fully align with the Russians and follow the lead that the Russians had set. Sadly, that lead directly led to that path, directly led to the trap that we were talking about. Now, what were the options? Well, we know that in June, for example, in June 20, uh, there were secret negotiations that the United States had put together between Stepanakert and uh, Baku. Uh, Stepanakert, Aray Karchin, could have shown the courage and attended those talks and defied Russian pressure, which would have produced a different outcome. He did not. And it's not a question of blame. We understand his behavior within the risk-induced logic that I just presented. So the decision was made that they will fundamentally align with Russia and hope for the best. And so acquiescing to Russian pressure and not attending those talks produced detrimental outcomes, which Azerbaijan used those developments to justify their argument that Stepanakir doesn't want to talk with us. Furthermore, we have no reason to talk to Stepanakert, but we still extend a hand after Western pressure. And even then, Stepanakert basically spat in our face, right? They were able to spin that in a disturbing way that fed them. So that was consistent with their interests. Moving forward, it became pretty obvious that the West, having basically given up uh, the hope that Stepanakert and Baku can engage in cogent negotiations, understanding that Russia was obstructing the process, and accepting the fact that Stepanakert had no other options but to basically give in to Russian demands, there was a prevailing logic that the solution was going to be unilaterally in the preferences of Azerbaijan. Noting those developments, Azerbaijan moved very cleverly on this. He began offering these artificial proposals to Stepanakir. Now, whether Stepanakir agreed to those artificial proposals and whether that would have staved off what happened, we don't know. I have zero trust in Aliyev, so I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to Stepanakir's decision making. Uh, nonetheless, what we saw were well laid traps that Stepanakir falling into that Azerbaijan utilized to advance its arguments. The first trap, for example, was the uh, presidential elections by the parliament. When Aray Karchinyan resigned, before even 
the Parliament of Artsakh began uh, discussing a vote, Baku methodically spread the news to all of the Western capital, saying that, look what Artsakh is about to do. They're about to engage in active provocation, right? In this severe situation, if Artsakh does this, they're basically seeking to derail the, to the negotiation process and thus force us to use uh, military means. They basically proliferated that logic. Artsakh fell into that trap by precisely doing what the Azerbaijanis wanted them to do. And so contextually, right, uh, Stepan Akert could have had an acting president. It did not need to go through that vote. Okay? It did not need to have fallen into that trap. And so well, the fact that Russia encouraged Stepan Akert to go through that process suggests a continuation of, of these developments. And then, of course, uh, 10 days before uh, the attack, before the September 19 attack, this was reported extensively in, in Armenian media uh, that uh, Baku again offered some uh, measure of a face-saving mechanism for both sides, some kind of an off-ramp where Stepanakert would turn over all the heavy weaponry to, uh, to the Russians, and then uh, Baku would offer some mechanisms of self-policing, etc., 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 cultural uh, rights, educational rights to Stepanakert. Stepanakert again rejected those. Baku knew very well that the proposal it was making was artificial, but that rejection would allow it for them to justify the use of force. So contextually, we see that the options uh, Stepanakert had was either to accept the proposals and thus somehow bypass the traps were being, that were set, even though it was extremely difficult for any uh, leadership to do that, or to reject those proposals and then risk developments. Uh, the concern is that, of course, Stepanakert at some level assumed that by virtue of rejecting those proposals, they had the support of the Russians, therefore the Russians would not allow things to develop the way they did. Unfortunately, right, Russia's encouragement of Stepanakert to uh, reject those proposals was part of the broader trap of uh, leading to where things led. And then the, the collapse of the Artsakh Republic was the consequence of these developments. Uh, indeed. And uh, I want to talk about Moscow's, uh, the Kremlin's um, criticism of Yerevan, uh, this constant barrage, if you will, of uh, news and uh, reports, uh, very strong statements from their uh, MFA, from the Kremlin, uh, basically saying that Yerevan was uh, to blame for all of this. And uh, I know you've talked about this uh, in, on other platforms and other forums, but I think it's also important to talk about the Medusa uh, investigation uh, and what it found most definitely. And this isn't, again, the, the important thing here is that this is not some perspective by the Erevan's elite or some Armenian scholars taking a very pro-Armenian anti-Russian posture. And this was an investigation by non-Armenian investigative journalists who revealed these developments. So what we saw is that Russia had initiated concrete uh, hybrid warfare and information warfare uh, strategies against Armenia three, four weeks prior to the separate September 19 uh, invasion by Azerbaijan. Furthermore, they had already began shaping a narrative that whatever happens, all of you are to blame Armenia for this, therefore basically putting Yerevan on the spot. So 
Kremlin media, Kremlin mouthpieces, Russian media were given directives to start blaming Armenia for what was going to happen. Interestingly, Azerbaijan's defense minister, I think, sort of made a faux pas, where they said we had informed the Russians of the pending attack. Uh, Russia had to backtrack on that, saying we found out minutes ago. Clearly, no one is believing this, right? So the collusion was very, very straightforward. All of the evidence that we see between Russia preparing to blame Armenia for Azerbaijan's invasion of Nagorno-Karabakh, Russia basically giving the talking points to all of its media, and this is being revealed by investigative journalists uh, outside of Armenia who have nothing to do with Armenia. Uh, and furthermore, seeing this play out the way it played out, and, and after the invasion, Russia precisely doing what the Medusa report revealed Russia intended on doing, all this clearly indicates that the trap was set by Baku and Moscow, and Moscow did an extensive, extensive uh, planning and, and seeking to uh, blame developments on Yerevan with the hopes that the September 19 attack on Artsakh would trigger domestic instability and regime change in Armenia. So the interconnection there has been very, very obvious. Furthermore, we have seen uh, a concerted effort by Russia's foreign ministry and by Putin himself, who spoke about this, concretely blaming Armenia on development, even though Armenia really has no agency in Stepanakia, because it's basically Russian peacekeepers, the Artsakh Armenians, and Baku. So blaming Yerevan over developments that Yerevan has very little or almost no control over was a clear indicator of where Moscow was going with this. And so in, the, in that context, right, the logic was, well, Azerbaijan has no choice but to use force. We understand Azerbaijan. We sympathize with them. But the Armenians, you know, um, we don't know. We're going to blame them because that's how we see it and that's how it makes sense to us. And so this whole logic of let's basically double down on attacking the victim, even though the victim is helpless, to just justify the behavior of the perpetrator became the modus operandi of the Kremlin. We know yesterday that there are today uh, very few state officials, some civil servants that have been left behind or, or that stayed behind in Nagorno-Karabakh to continue with the search and rescue uh, operations to retrieve uh, bodies and try to locate uh, people who are missing, who are thought to be missing. Effectively, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh is... Um, as I said at the top, completely uh, depopulated. And I know this is not part of the your security briefing necessarily, but out of curiosity, how does the Russian peacekeeping contingent justify its continuation there when there's nobody left to? Right now, the, the November 9 trilateral statement doesn't exist. Uh, so the mandate of the Russian peacekeepers also doesn't exist. Uh, I mean, the, the entire mandate was blown up by what Azerbaijan did. So in that context, almost every single uh, uh, stipulation within that uh, trilateral statement is basically either negated or non-existent. And so the source of the Russian peacekeepers having any legitimacy in those territories, per the statement, per the agreement, are non-existent. And Peskov, the spokesperson for the Kremlin, was asked this question, and, and Peskov said, well... This is a conversation between Moscow and Baku because this pertains to Baku's territorial integrity. So his response basically was that these are no longer peacekeepers, but Russian troops 
uh, that are basically within Azerbaijan's territory, and we're going to be discussing with Azerbaijan on how we proceed with that. Yeah, so this is no longer about the Artsakh population, it's no longer about peacekeeping. This is now a Russo-Azerbaijani discourse on how do they preserve uh, the presence of Russian forces within Azerbaijan. Indeed. Well, we need to definitely now uh, switch gears and talk about the role of the West, um, the role of the United Nations. Uh, you know, Nessus, you <laughs> have been following very closely, obviously, everything that's been going on. And to see those uh, video images of a so-called UN mission or investigation or whatever, you know, driving into Gharapag, it was, it was almost insulting uh, to to all of us, and so certainly to the people of Artsakh, um, when the UN did not use any of its levers in the name of, again, again, let's preserve, you know, a balance, let's make sure the peace process is moving forward. And in the name of this peace process, we ended up with a, the complete ethnic cleansing of a population that has lived in Artsakh, in Nagorno-Karabakh, for more than a millennia. So let's talk about the West's, you call it incohate naivety, because how is it that they believe the words of a dictator? Well, we're, we're assuming that, and I'm going to be a little cynical here, uh, we're assuming that the population of Artsakh was not an important part of the peace process. Uh, I think that viewed purely through uh, pragmatic and cold, rational lens, indifferent to the human condition, the population of Artsakh makes the peace process more structurally coherent from their lens than it would if you have to deal with the 120,000 population that is consistent protection from a predatory state. So one of the biggest obstacles to the quote-unquote peace process was the issue of Artsakh's population's rights and securities, structuration of status, is there no status, or the international mechanisms, are there international instruments, aren't there, et cetera, et cetera. All of those issues are no longer there. So from the lens of Western actors, right, who are pushing for the peace process, they do not consider the ethnic cleansing of Artsakh as having any structural effect upon the peace process. Rather, they view it as an important obstacle that has been removed for which there was no solution because the two sides were so diametrically opposed. So we have to be honest about that, as disturbing as that is to us. As far as the United Nations is concerned, I think there's a misunderstanding on the efficacy or the potency of the, of, of the UN. The UN really is not a very effective body, considering the fact that powerful nations uh, in, in that body are only able to be active when there's consensus. And it was very clear that Russia from the start was working against Armenia's interests and giving Baku political capital. So you were never going to see anything come out of the UN Security Council that was going to allow this issue to be addressed. More so, the United States, and this is the inchoate naivety that we're talking about, okay, or the you know concealed cynicism, the United States wasn't very happy that the French every time would, would uh, open up this issue at the UN because the U.S. perspective was it might derail the peace process and therefore let the process work out instead of bringing it to the UN and seeking to uh, develop punitive uh, behavior or actions against Azerbaijan. So the U.S. perspective proved to be fundamentally flawed in that the peace process was sufficient to deter Aliyah from doing what he wanted to do. 
whereas the UN pretty much could not act because there was no way Russia was going to allow an international force to make decisions or determinations inside Nagorno-Karabakh. So these were the developments. Now you said, you know, uh, you noted that this um, UN um, observation mission or whatever it was that came in, uh, you know, their presence is as an insult. Uh, one can argue it's more than an insult because if you make, observe the makeup of that UN mission, it's basically handpicked by Azerbaijan. What you have in that mission are basically accredited uh, representatives from Pakistan, Turkey, Russia, Albania, countries that are aligned with Azerbaijan. So while they may be UN workers, it's kind of ridiculous that the UN mission is structured through the preference of the given state that's allowing them in. I mean, it reeks of, of serious ethical and intellectually inconsistent developments, where whatever is produced by this UN observation body is going to have serious questions of objectivity and credibility. So the process itself is really, really convoluted and it's going to be a black eye for the UN. Um, but again, at this point, what we're seeing is the UN trying to engage in some kind of safe, face-saving behavior, okay? And the West trying to basically make the following posture that as long as the 120,000 people were safely being, uh, removed to Armenia, uh, the territorial configuration is secondary. Therefore, mass death or genocide was avoided. So all the guests the benefit of the doubt in the sense that, well, he didn't get to massacre these people. Therefore, it didn't end up as bad as he could have had. Therefore, we're kind of happy about these developments. It's really a disturbing uh, perspective. But it comes to the point that I've been making the last week as I've observed these developments in more depth. I've come to the realization, and most of us were blind to this, uh, how much the West and the international community hated Nagorno-Karabakh as a political institution, as a political construct. And so its collapse was tacitly welcomed by everybody. We did not see a single condemnation of these developments. All we saw was a discourse on the humanitarian component, right? But the fact that Nagorno-Karabakh did have legal standing in the Soviet Union, that it was an autonomous oblast, that its disintegration is going to have regional, uh, 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 basically think residual uh, outcomes, is basically ignored. And so, you know, the fact that the West always viewed Nagorno-Karabakh as a Russian construct, I think behind the scenes they were cheerleading for its thing, decline and its collapse. Sure, they wanted the population to be safe, but I did not see anyone showing the slightest of concern how 30 years of institution building, democracy building, self-governance was thrown down the drain, right? Just basically heaped into the trash bin of history and the West being totally indifferent to it. That kind of suggested to me showed how much Nagorno-Karabakh as a political uh, institution, as a structure, was despised by the West. But now we need to talk about the elephant in the room, because um, as we saw Acting Assistant Secretary of State Yuri Kim and USAID Director Samantha Power came to Armenia uh, after the exodus of the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh had already begun in full force, they came, um, you know, with their usual platitudes, they went, they had a couple of photo ops, when pushed Samantha Power's 
could not put the words ethnic cleansing, uh, couldn't, couldn't form the words to, to describe what was happening. And we all remember during the congressional hearing when Yuri Kim said that the United States would not tolerate uh, ethnic cleansing at any level. Um, and then they keep talking about the sovereignty, independence, territorial integrity, and democracy of the Republic of Armenia. We all know, and I think we have to be very honest with ourselves and, and, and stop, uh, you know, being pathological liars to ourselves and understand that this is not over and that Azerbaijan will at some point, whether it's tomorrow or six months from now, initiate an attack against the sovereign Republic of Armenia to force uh, what they are calling a Zankezur corridor, an extraterritorial corridor that would cut Armenia in half. So we're seeing that if we agree that the West hated Nagorno-Karabakh, they eliminated that problem, uh, the, the population is now in Armenia, what is it that they can do to protect the sovereignty, independence, territorial integrity and democracy of the Republic of Armenia? Or we should just cut our losses and say, you know what? The world has basically abandoned us. The world didn't owe us anything. Let's start there. We expected everything from the world. Um, what is it that is left to do? So these are two separate issues. I have spoken to people in D.C., in state, uh, even to people in Brussels, and this is common knowledge now that they are all very upset with Baku when they were cut off guard because Baku had promised they would not undertake any military action against Nagorno-Karabakh. That the negotiations were so close to Baku getting what it wanted that he had no reason to use force. Okay, The fact that he used force kind of aligns with what we were talking about part of the Russo-Azerbaijani trap and the destabilization of Armenia. But as far as that's concerned, whether it's Yuri Kim or much of the European Commission, all of these senior officials were really shocked and caught off guard because they didn't understand why Azerbaijan would use force, as I noted, because they were so close in achieving what they wanted to achieve with the negotiations. So in that context, yes, they were caught off guard and yes, they were upset. But again, they were not upset to the extent that it would trigger action because as angry as they were from their lands, it at least led to some kind of a solution to the Nagorno-Karabakh problem that they weren't going to be able to find any. So that is how we qualified those developments. As far as Samantha Power and Yuri Kim coming to Armenia, Samantha Power did not come to Armenia because of the refugees. Samantha Power did not come to Armenia because of the ethnic cleansing. Samantha Power came to Armenia to make sure that Azerbaijan doesn't attack Armenia proper. This was the United States signaling to Azerbaijan. And furthermore, when she flew to Azerbaijan, much of the conversation was about Armenia's territorial integrity, etc., etc. Because at this point, there's no conversation to be had with Azerbaijan about protecting the population when there is no population there. So it's very obvious that when you visit a country after all the ethnic, ethnic, ethnic minority there has been depopulated, you have no conversation there about the ethnic population. Your conversation is about Azerbaijan not attacking Armenia. Because for the United States, there are strategic reasons why they will not tolerate that. And it's not about Armenia proper in of itself. It's about basically Russia's soft exit out of the region, which we've talked about. Because from America's lens, any wide-ranging attack into Armenia proper by Azerbaijan would be an extension of Azerbaijan's proxyization of Russia. And this will lead to the collapse of the Velvet government, which is precisely what Russia wants. So from America's lens, preserving Armenia's territorial integrity and sovereignty is a mechanism of preserving its democracy, which is another way of saying preserving the government that doesn't know that no longer wants to be a Russian satellite. So there is the 
therein lies the approach of the Americans. So in that context, uh, of course, Samantha Power wasn't going to use the term ethnic cleansing, because if she did, that would force the United States to take action. Okay, It would force the United States to ha have to take some punitive actions against Azerbaijan. But that's not why she came to Armenia. We need to understand that. So the whole refugee crisis, the ethnic cleansing, the depopulation, uh, the West is over that. Right now, what you're seeing basically is some kind of an attempt to cover up for their failures and then overcompensate on the discourse about protecting Armenia and Armenian sovereignty. So you are going to see an overcompensation on that by virtue of their failures when it came to Nagorno-Karabakh. But Nurses, the West clearly saw that um, sitting down with a, a dictator, let's call him, for lack of a, another word, um, who did not keep his word, right, who made promises, who did not have to uh, resort to the kind of violence that we saw, to the entire ethnic cleansing, what guarantees do they have in the absence of deterrence, in the absence of punitive measures, to deter Baku, Aliyev, from attacking Armenia? It's fine to say all of these things and to open a consul, consulate, you know, the French opened a consulate in Goris and for the Iranians to do that and, and, and everything. But at the end of the day, Aliyev has a proven track record of doing what Aliyev wants. So here's an interesting thing. As far as the Western figures, uh, decision makers, and you know, uh, foreign policy uh, elite are concerned, they actually were making the argument that Aliyev has always stayed consistent with his word. This is why they were so caught off guard with what happened on September 19th. Because in the past, Aliyev, for example, according to a lot of their arguments, has never promised something and not done it. If he's done something, he's basically kind of hinted at the West that these are my options and I, ha I reserve the right to do it. But he's never promised he won't do it. But with, with the uh, use of force in Artsakh, most people in most of uh, decision makers uh, in the foreign policy establishments are making the point that he did promise he would not use force. So to answer your question from the lens of these Western observers and decision makers, this is actually the first time that Aliyev has broken his word. That's why they were so livid. But it comes back to your point, which is well taken. How do you take a despot for their word? It's a matter of time before he breaks it. So in that context, when we're now talking about the Republic of Armenia, we have we're, we reached the rationale that it doesn't matter what promises Aliyev gives, right? The West cannot believe him. So to address that, what other mechanisms or steps is the, uh, is the West taking? So in, in that context, right, it is incumbent upon... Uh, both the Republic of Armenia's uh, foreign policy leadership, its diplomacy, and all supporters of Armenia to make the point that there is precedent where Aliyev has given his word not to use force and has used it and has used it in such a level that it has led to severe uh, human rights crimes, violations of international humanitarian law. And these are war crimes. And so in that context, right, where in the past the West viewed Aliyev as a credible despot, right now that has been punctured. And that is going to play a big role in convincing the West that Aliyev's word is not, cannot be taken at any level as a source of credibility when it comes to the territorial integrity of Armenia. Uh, Nurses, final question, maybe a complex question, but it needs to be asked. You have said many times, and we uh, acknowledge this, that after the 2020 uh, 44-day war, uh, when Armenia suffered the catastrophic defeat that it did, when its armed forces were heavily impacted, not to say decimated, that with the November 9 
uh, trilateral statement, the Russian peacekeepers were deployed to protect the rights and security of the people of Artsakh, and that Armenia did not have agency when it came to what was taking place in Nagorno-Karabakh. Today, the issue has shifted. Today, the issue remains the sovereignty, the protection of the borders of the Republic of Armenia. And we have seen, certainly, that Armenia's uh, um, foreign ministry has been very active in its diplomatic, uh, in its diplomacy, and I'm sure there are things that are happening in the back channels that we don't oftentimes see. I'm sure that because the defense ministry is very opaque, there are hopefully um, reforms being made, changes being made, improvements being uh, implemented. Is Armenia's government capable today of navigating this very complex and very dangerous very dangerous situation that we find ourselves in? That is an excellent question, Maria. Um, I would say on one hand, uh, yes, because they were uh, able to navigate the Russo-Azerbaijani trap, the Republic of Armenia was, and it did not fall into this trap and basically allow a war to be initiated that we knew we had no chance of winning at the stage. So the capacity to avoid those traps, those basically uh, well-developed ambushes that were structured, both diplomatic and sort of geopolitical ambushes that were developed by the Russians and the Azerbaijanis, that suggests that's a good signal of this government's ability to navigate those factors. Now, overarchingly, right, navigate, being able to navigate and not, not fall into a trap is very different than being able to navigate and develop or bring about the resources that can allow you to overcome uh, the continuity of these uh, uh, security problems that are being born. In that context, um, you know, I don't have uh, an honest answer to that, and I don't want to be speculative. I lean towards the evidence that I have in front of me, and they're suggesting a few things. Armenia has never been this diplomatically active or relatively having our voice heard to this extent that we've ever had. It doesn't mean it produced the results that we wanted to. Nonetheless, we are at least being heard and shaping narrative. So there's, that is a qualitative improvement based on the past, but it's clearly not enough. But it's a step forward. Second, Armenia has been able to escape the structured dependency that Russia set up for us. And Artsakh was the last structured dependency, right? Uh, we depended on Russia to protect Artsakh. It collapsed. Now the Republic of Armenia itself no longer depends on Russia to protect itself. So this capacity for you know, self-reliance is an important first step. In that context, uh, we are purchasing a lot of weapons, for example, from India. More orders have been put in. France has agreed to sell weapons to Armenia, which was unheard of in the past because we were CSTO members. Armenia's military budget, whereas it was in the four or 500 million range in the past, right now exceeds 1.4 billion. All of those are indicators that the government is attempting to navigate both the security and the diplomatic contours of the serious situation that we're in. Now, have they developed a mastery of it? Of course not, but it's always hard to exercise mastery when you're at a severe disadvantage. So the, so the structural components of our inherent disadvantage need to be considered. But I think a lot of our Western partners are realizing that uh, as unsympathetic they were towards the Nagorno-Karabakh issue, they do understand that Armenia needs to have some level of power parity with Azerbaijan. There needs to be some balance or else you're going to have continuous instability in the region because you couldn't deter a bully for five months, six months, on and off. But continuously, right, no one's going to sit down and babysit the South Caucasus. 
So in that context, um, the fact that NATO members are ready to sell weapons to Armenia is an important indicator that there's been a shift in that logic and arming Armenia, or at least giving Armenia the opportunity to arm itself is an important configuration of balancing these things out. So uh, to, to answer your question, we are seeing a certain forward movement uh, on this capacity for navigation. But at the same time, you know, being at a disadvantage and having the regional autocratic forces between Turkey, Azerbaijan, and Russia working against you, you're always going to be in an extraordinarily vulnerable position. So even if you hypothetically may navigate things to perfection, there are still so many exogenous factors that you cannot address. So to answer your question, uh, yes, there's been improvement, but it's nowhere close to the level of sufficiency that we need. But then it's understandable why, because we're in a constant state of flux. Yeah, and certainly speaking of NATO members, we didn't talk much about Turkey at all or, or Iran, but that's a conversation that uh, we can talk about uh, sometime in the future, I'm assuming, it because they do play a very important role. Nurses, thank you for um, taking the time. We, we, we spoke quite extensively uh, this time around, and I think it's important uh, to help all of us understand the processes that are taking place. And, and like I said, stop lying to ourselves and realize what the realities are and what we need to do and what we need to and how we need to unite and um, stop the division the the divisionary forces are, are what is weakening the very foundations of Armenia statehood and I think this is an important message that maybe we need to keep talking about so thank you thank you thank you